Thank you, Todd. After that introduction, I'm not sure I can speak. But Let me say, I love you, and I appreciate you. Thank you so much for who you are and what you do and for walking with us through every trial we've ever gone through, even the most recent one. We've never gone through a trial alone. Once again, I'm reminded, well, not reminded, I'm actually overwhelmed by your love expressed in many tangible ways and how through you and friends and family God has provided for us and Everything's been okay. and You know, God is good. And thank you. I want to let you know we do love you and appreciate you. I had a great introduction planned for this morning. But it was based on the twins, Joanne and Diane, singing a particular song. Now circumstances and people have forced a hiatus on those plans. Uh, some of you know, uh, Joanne's mother, we had to take her by ambulance to the hospital Thursday night. She's got pneumonia and blood clots in her lungs, and uh, we're having a time. And uh, Diane, just before I left, Diane stayed with her last night and let us know that they had an alarm on her bed in case she got up, but Diane fell asleep. Mom took all the gauze off her arm pulled the IV out, got out of bed without setting the alarm, and was in the bathroom, and Diane heard her moving the trash can around. So we, they had a mess, blood everywhere. And that's, that's the way the last few days have been going. So we would still appreciate your prayers for Joanne and Diane and their mom, Naomi. You know, this whole Christmas is nothing that I had planned. I didn't plan to be without a job this Christmas. Uh, a lot of things I didn't plan on this Christmas. And many of you are experiencing a Christmas that you didn't exactly plan either. And as a matter of fact, as I look back on six decades of Christmases, very few have gone as planned. I wondered just a moment ago why I didn't put a poem in there. Damon Holmes could quote it for you, but Robert Burns on To a Mouse, on turning over one as he is plowing a field. The mouse had worked really hard building a nest, and he just plowed right through it and had the words, Ah, oh, but mousey, thou art no thy lane, that all thy foresight be in gain, be in vain. For in the best laid plans of mice and men gang off the glay. Even your best plans often go awry. Most of Christmases in the last six decades have not gone as planned. Some of them have been tragic. Some have been disappointing. As I look back over it now, many were a whole lot better than I ever planned. Joanne and I planned to spend last Christmas, just the two of us, and a couple of people came in, and then about 1 o'clock in the morning, I heard the doorbell. I went to the front door, and in the snow, 
were my three grandchildren with their parents. They came in on us all of a sudden, and uh, it was a wonderful Christmas. Didn't go as planned, but it was much better. And we're talking about Christmas, going back to the first Christmas. It was not according to the plans of many. You know, that young teenage girl, they tell me she was maybe 13 or 14 years old. I don't know. But I can tell you one thing. She did not plan to be pregnant that year. And neither did her parents plan for that. Joseph did not plan to take his wife, who was about nine months pregnant, to Bethlehem to register for the census. That wasn't in his plan. The shepherds had not planned to be frightened out of their wits by an angel that night out in the fields. Now Herod had plans to destroy that Christmas for everyone and for all the rest of time. But nothing went in according to plans for him either. Nothing went according to plan for anyone except God, that is. Everything went according to His plan. That year and this year. And it may not be fun now, but 500 years from now we'll look back on it and say that was just right because God is doing things according to plan. Let's take a look at it. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2 and let's read Matthew chapter 2 together. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, Where is the Christ who is to be born? Or asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Right. Oh, that's comment. That's not scripture. (laughs) Going back to scripture, verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and myrrh. 
And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream... He withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived at a town called Nazareth so that it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. May we pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for this opportunity to be with this wonderful church family and look at your word together. Would you speak to us what you have to say? Help us to learn what you would have us to learn from your word this morning and through what we learn and what we apply. May we become more like Jesus himself. And in this and in all things, this Christmas and those yet to come, May your greater glory be our chief concern. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Herod thought he was in control. Herod had worked hard and long to become king of the Jews. His power and authority had continually increased. His enemies were being continually eliminated. Rome and the emperor were more than 1,400 miles away. And depending on the weather and the time of year, the journey could take months. So Herod in that region was the man. He was the man in control. He was the man in charge. He knew it and he liked it that way. He fought hard to become the man in control, and he would continue to fight to be, remain in control. Now, the Jews did not like him. They didn't like Roman rule, and the Romans had appointed him. And here come some Persians 
throwing gasoline on the fire. Talking about someone born to be king of the Jews. Herod was responsible to the Romans to keep peace. It was his job to keep these kinds of fires from burning out of control. And he was in trouble. And besides, he was king of the Jews. A title he was not about to give up. A title he was not about to share with anyone. And we need to go back in history and take a look at Herod because Herod was a real piece of work. Think Saddam Hussein. Think Adolf Hitler. Think Joseph Stalin. That's the character. That's the type of guy we're talking about. And to really talk about him, we need to go back a little bit in history and talk about some things. In 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes ravaged Jerusalem, sacrificed a pig on the altar of God in the temple, and dedicated the temple, God's temple, to Zeus. In 165 B.C., three years later, Judas Maccabeus, who was the son of Mattathias the priest, who had started a revolt, and Judas carried on and was successful in his revolt. In 168, he cleansed and rededicated the temple to God. Now that was the origin of what was known as the Festival of Lights. Today they call it Hanukkah, the other celebration that's besides Christmas, the Jewish celebration of light. When Judas died, his brother Jonathan ruled until he was killed by the Syrians. And then his brother, their other brother Simon, ushered in a time of peace and prosperity. Simon was treacherously killed by his son-in-law. But they started a line call them the Maccabean rulers, although Maccabee was really a title. Uh, the historians will refer to it, if you're a historian, as the Hasmonean dynasty. That's the Maccabees. And they're now in control, or somewhat in control in the area. And eventually, one of the Maccabean rulers, Alexander, appointed a man by the name of Antipas to be governor of Edom. Now the son of Antipas was Antipater and Antipater was made procurator of Judea. He was made that by the Romans. And then Antipater was allowed to appoint his son Herod, the guy we're talking about, Tetrarch of Galilee. Now, Seven years after that, that was in 47 B.C. that Herod got appointed Tetrarch of Galilee. Seven years later, it was a time of confusion. It was a time of civil war. Herod went to Rome. And through treachery and bribery and just out and out cunning and political savvy, he got himself appointed king of Judea. That was the job he wanted. While he was at Rome, he was given an army. 
and sent back to Judea to enable him to carve out his own kingdom for himself with that army. And he proved to be a very capable military leader. But he was a shrewd politician. You see, the original benefactor of his, the original person that he was loyal to and got his power from was Mark Antony. But you know from Shakespeare and maybe from history that Mark Antony and hooked up with Cleopatra in Egypt and began to lose power and Octavian began to gain prominence in Rome. Well, Octavian finally got control by the Senate. And Mark Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide. Herod was in trouble. But Herod was a master politician. He went to Rome, went to Octavian, who had been given the title by the Roman Senate of Augustus, the revered one. It was a religious title. So when we say Augustus Caesar, that was more of a title His real name was Octavian, Augustus Caesar, the revered one. Herod went to Rome and was able to convince Octavian that he was so loyal to Mark Antony, but all the problems were really Cleopatra's fault, and he was really loyal to Octavian. Well, Octavian gave him even more territory and more authority, and more control. So Herod went back. But convincing the Romans was one thing, and being accepted by the Jews was something else altogether, because he was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. But somehow, the story leaked out that he was descended from a prominent Jewish family. And he did nothing to correct that story. Sounds like modern politics, doesn't it? Let let stories leak out to the press and put the proper spin on it, and it works for our good. Well, that, that was Herod. It was happening then. He outwardly, not inwardly, but he outwardly accepted the Jewish religion. No. Sometimes for political expediency, people will accept religion or outwardly. They become a member of a church. Herod was doing that back then. Now to curry favor, at least two times during his rule, he lowered taxes. And we need some more politicians to take some ideas from that. But during a famine... He took gold from his own household, gold articles from his own household, and traded them in for grain, for food, and fed the people. He was a politician. He built cities. He built Caesarea in honor of Caesar. He built a theater. He built an amphitheater. He built a hippodrome or a racetrack. He loved athletics. And then he proposed to rebuild and enlarge the temple. One ancient historian of the day wrote, You have never seen a beautiful building until you've seen Herod's temple. But he still wasn't really accepted by the Jews. The Jews were still in love 
with the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, the Maccabean family. So Herod married into the Maccabean, thinking it would be a good political move. He married a woman, wasn't his first wife, but he married a woman named Mariamne, or we might call her Miriam. And she became his favorite wife. He had ten wives. But Miriamne was his favorite wife, even though it's not enough to be your favorite wife. He eventually murdered her. He accused her of a crime and murdered her. Herod felt the need to eliminate anyone that might today or sometime in the future contend with him for the throne. One time he executed about 45 of the wealthiest aristocrats in Jerusalem, just got rid of them. And then it was time to get rid of his brother-in-law, Aristobulus. Aristobulus, remember, is a Maccabean, popular with the Jews. Herod was jealous. Let's get rid of him. It was during the Feast of Tabernacles. And they went down to Jericho for a great celebration. When you think about Jericho, think Palm Springs. It's that kind of area. And it was hot. And even though it wasn't common for the aristocrats, the royals, to get in the water with the commoners, it was so hot that Herod convinced Aristobulus, let's go swimming. And they got in the water, and some of Herod's buddies were over there already in the water, and they got to horse playing, you know, like you will do. Only they had something in mind. They held Aristobulus down under the water until he drowned. But it was an accident. Nobody showed more grief than Herod himself. Herod even paid for and gave him the most magnificent funeral. Herod was an excellent politician. But he was accused, somebody, well in fact his mother-in-law, Alexandra, accused him of murder, of Aristobulus, and he had to go to Rome to explain the situation to Octavian. Several times Herod got called away, sometimes to Rome, and every time he left, he left with instructions if he did not come back that Mariamne would, would be executed. That's the kind of guy he was. He had to murder her, get rid of her. But they had two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. They happened to be Herod's favorite sons. Because they were his favorite sons and they would probably be in his will to take over the kingdom, Herod rewrote his will at least three times. He sent them to Rome to be educated and because they were his favorite sons, he went to Rome himself to fetch them back to Jerusalem. But he eventually had to put them in prison, torture them, and eventually execute them. And just a few days before his death, he was dying. He was very sick and he knew he was dying. He had a third son executed. Augustus himself said it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be one of his sons. That's the reputation he had. That's the kind of guy we're dealing with. Well, he's very ill. 
got a number of problems. Going to die very shortly. So he rounds up all the most notable men, the men of renown, the heroes of Jerusalem in the area. And he has them arrested and brought to the Hippodrome with orders that as soon as he dies, they are to be executed. And he explained it. He knew no one in the city would grieve him. No one would mourn for him. But he said, there is going to be mourning in this city when I die. That's the kind of guy he was. Josephus, the Jewish historian, summed up Herod's life with these words. He was a man of great barbarity toward all men equally. You see, he believed in equal rights in those days. He was going to treat everybody badly. Now let's go back to verse 3, chapter 2. When King, uh, you know, the, 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 the Magi came... He said, we've seen the star. Where's one born to be king of the Jews? Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. New American Standard and the King James says he was troubled. The original verb means to shake. So in the words of a much later king, Elvis Presley, he was all shook up. Uh Uh-huh. He thought he was in control. He was being threatened, so he was all shook up. He had to come up with a plan, and he did. Verse 4. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. They knew. Seems like not a moment's hesitation. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. No chance that this was talking about anyone else. It was a prophecy about the Messiah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod, here's the plan, called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to go to Bethlehem Here's the way it'll happen. Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me that I too may go and worship him. He was going to convince the Magi, and perhaps he did. Find him for me, and then let me go worship him. But worship was not his intention. Like so many of us so many times, we like to think that we are in control. A couple of weeks ago from this platform, Meredith Hardy said something that I don't think I'll ever forget. I appreciate her boldness and willingness to confess a problem of wanting a backup plan in case God didn't come through. She preached me under conviction that day. I said, that's my problem. I want a backup plan in case God doesn't come through. And that's why I was so anxious and I was so depressed is because my backup plan fell through. You know, as as long as we get a backup plan, we still feel like we've got some kind of control. 
when our backup plans fall through, we get depressed and anxious. What we need to learn to do is trust God. When all your backup plans fall through, you realize how very little in your life you actually have control over. Your only reasonable response is simply trust God. He has everything under control and He's working for your good. Now one of the problems, you know, Herod thought he was in control and when somebody threatened his control, he got all shook up. The people in Jerusalem, they were afraid Herod was really in control. That was one of the problems. They thought he was in control. And so... Verse 3 again, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. He was all shook up, so they were all shook up because they knew what he could do and would do when he got shook up. We often feel like we're victims of our circumstances and that our lives and our plans are being controlled by some powerful people around us. A deceitful politician like Herod in Herod's day or in our day. A cruel employer. An unfaithful spouse. Certainly circumstances and people affect our lives. Illness. They cause us pain and hardship and at times untold suffering. There's no question on that. And on the surface, it may seem that they control our lives. But ultimately, they are not in control. No more than Herod was in control. God is in control and no plan of His can be thwarted. Over and over again in this passage. Look at verse 15. Well, first, look at verse 4 again. When he called the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born, in Bethlehem in Judea. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. In fulfillment of prophecy, God was working out his plan. And they knew where it would be done. Now verse 15. Verse 14. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Joseph and Mary were in Nazareth, but the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. God used a decree from Caesar Augustus to get him to Bethlehem. Work out his plan. God was using powerful people. Herod wanted to be in control. God had said out of Egypt, I'll call my son. God used Herod. Who wanted to destroy the Christ, God actually used him to help fulfill prophecy. So was fulfilled what the Lord had said. God was working out his plan. Verse 17. 
Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Tragic. All the sons of Bethlehem, two years old and under, were put to the sword. Great weeping. Somebody has called them the first martyrs of Christ. Now here, you know, as we look at that's tragic. There's no getting around it. It's tragic, it's painful, and it's hurtful. But then looking back on it, you can see those babies, instant heaven. They didn't have to go through any trials of life. But what about the parents and grandparents and, and, and relatives and friends? Tragic, and it hurt. But from the perspective of eternity, God was working out His plan, which was best for everyone involved and glorious, even though it hurt at the time. God's working out His plan. Look at verse 23. One more time in that small section. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. God's working out His plan. Let me say just a little bit about God's plan for you. I, I've seen it on a lot of plaques. You've read it. Uh, it's a verse I like, Jeremiah 29 and 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That was spoken to the Israelites during a tragic time, during a time of captivity. God said, I have good plans for you, even though it doesn't look like it. But does that apply to you and me? Does that concept apply to you and me? I think it does. Maybe not that passage so much. But Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. I like the King James version, abundant life. Have it abundantly. In that context, Jesus is speaking to all who come to him and are saved. That includes you and me if you've come to him. And he said, whoever comes to me, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Then that applies to us. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Ephesians, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good to those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. God is working out His plan. And it's your best out of His love for you. I've been told that more than 300 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. 300. Hundreds of years before He was born. Professor Peter Stoner, the late... Uh, Peter Stoner, who was a math professor in Southern California, calculated the odds for eight particular prophecies. One was that he would be born in Bethlehem. He calculated all the towns of the region. What were the odds that a baby would be born in Bethlehem compared to anywhere else? They did that for eight specific prophecies and found that the odds would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's the number one followed by 17 zeros. I would call that 
100 quadrillion. It's a big number. So to illustrate that number, he said, if you took silver dollars and laid them side by side, they would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. Mark one of those silver dollars, blindfold someone, he can walk anywhere from Dalhart to Brownsville, from Texarkana to El Paso, and pick up one and only one silver dollar, and it be that one marked silver dollar. That's the odds that eight of those prophecies would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Impossible odds. But there were over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. God is working out His plan in spite of impossible odds. Against all odds, against all opposition, God did what was humanly impossible to work out His plan that first Christmas. What I'd like for you to do is remember this Christmas, God, who doesn't change, is working out His plan. No matter who may oppose you, even a modern-day Herod, no matter what circumstances may seem to stand in the way, God loved you and sent His Son into this sinful world that first Christmas. He still loves you today. And is it work in your life this Christmas? Go back to the Old Testament. In the midst of incredible suffering, Job said to God, I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Job 42.2. Paul said in Ephesians 1 verse 11, God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In celebrating Christmas, we are celebrating God working out His plan. If you know the Christ of Christmas, God is working for your good. You can count on it, just as they could count on it throughout Scripture. If you do not know Jesus Christ personally, then it's time you did. If you will come to Him, He has promised that He will never drive you away. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the knowledge that you worked out your plan against all odds, against all opposition that first Christmas. And even though we don't understand it, and even though we don't like some of it, you're working out your plan for those who know you this Christmas. Help us to see that above all the pain and above all the disappointment and above all the plans that are not working out like we planned. That you are in control and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Give us that kind of assurance and help us to put our faith and trust in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. I love you.